0: My name is Paul Ramsey. Uh, I'm one of the church planting residents here, which means that, Lord willing, uh, in a couple of years, I'll be stepping out to plant a new neighborhood church uh, with some of you uh, in a new neighborhood in Houston uh, to become a little gospel uh, family trying to live out uh, the words of the Bible together, uh, whatever that might look like. Um, And it truly is an honor uh, to be here. Um, It's an honor that the elders have given me this chance to, to preach the word to you. This morning. Uh, And with that, I want to start this morning with a story uh, about a man named Narcissus, a story from ancient Greek mythology uh, about a man named Narcissus. And you can probably tell by his name uh, where this story goes. I'll read this summary Narcissus was a very handsome man in Greek mythology who was known for his beauty and who, because of his indifference and disdain toward others, was punished by the gods by falling in love with his own image. Nemesis. The Greek goddess of revenge noticed his behavior and attracted him to a pool where he saw his own reflection in the water and fell in love with it. Unable to leave the beauty of his reflection, Narcissus wasted away and died. So his name, Narcissus, is the origin uh, of the English word narcissism, which means uh, fixation with oneself, self-absorption, Uh, an overestimation of one's own importance and abilities. Uh, And I found an article in Psychology Today that I remembered reading a couple of years ago that said that narcissism was alive and well in America. Uh, So I looked back and found some of the numbers that it mentioned. One study found that 30% of young people were classified as narcissistic, a number that has doubled in the last 30 years. Another study reported a 40% decline among young people in empathy, which is the opposite of narcissism since the 1980s. And unfortunately, uh, it's probably not that surprising to hear these numbers, uh, considering the me-centered culture that we live in. We live uh, in a a culture that really centers around me, centers around uh, what's important for me, what I care about, and what I want to do. You see, let me me show show you. Uh, It's normal for me to to make a web page just about me, not my job, not what problem of the world that I'm trying to solve, just me. No one questions that. In fact, it's normal for me to have web pages, plural, about me, depending on uh, who I want to give updates to, whether it be my boss, my friends, my family. And these are sites where I get to put up the best pictures of myself, give life, life updates, uh, because it's really important for you to know what's going on with me. This me centered culture is all around us, uh, it's in the music we listen to, the celebrities we pay attention to, we're bombarded through our TVs, tablets, and cell phones. We're in the midst of a a self-esteem movement in education and parenting. Uh, This self-esteem movement really uh, has just resulted in a decline in real self-esteem and an increase in uh, self-love and unjustified personal exceptionalism. So I could go on, but I'll stop there. Here's what I really wanna say with this. We're all searching for a purpose. Uh, We're all searching for something to bring meaning and purpose to even the most mundane things that we do. And I find it really interesting that for so many of us, uh, our culture tells us that that answer uh, is found inside yourself. Because for a culture that tells us that you just need to look within yourself for fulfillment, we're awfully scared of being alone with ourselves. Right? We're always texting checking email, uh, reading some blog, commenting on someone's Facebook, Instagramming, tweeting, always doing something because we're scared to be alone. Scared to be alone with our thoughts because what then uh, if we're alone with our thoughts we'll realize that we still haven't found that purpose we've been searching for. You see, we're, we're all searching for purpose and narcissism, isn't it? It's all about you is not enough. The Greeks knew that, we know that, and so we search. Malachi is going to tell us about this grand story that we're invited into. This global purpose of God to restore all things to himself. But the problem we come to is that we can't possibly think about the globe if all we think about is ourselves. And God will tell us through Malachi that we were made for more than this. We were made for more uh, than our lives uh, to just revolve around ourselves. We were made for our lives to revolve around this much bigger purpose that simply uh, uh, it is the purpose that is guiding the very fabric of the whole universe. So let's lean in together. As we open the Bible, uh, remember that the Bible is divided into two parts. Uh, the Old Testament, which tells the story of Israel, the nation of Israel before the arrival of Christ. Uh, and then the New Testament, which tells the story of Jesus' life uh, and the life of his apostles. And God tells us uh, in the Old Testament that when he created man, uh, mankind, he created them good. Uh, and then when Adam's, Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they fell out of his grace, right? Uh, and we know now that when Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't just because they ate the wrong kind of fruit. It was because uh, in so doing, they really were acting in rebellion against God because they wanted things their way. And so they were cast out. Uh, and we see generation after generation of men and women falling into this same rebellion, wanting to do things their way. Uh, but, but what's really incredible to me as we read through the Bible, as we read through the Old Testament, we really read about God's incredible patience with his people. You see, at any given moment, he could have just ended humanity and completely started over, but he didn't. The story he was writing was much more beautiful than that. See, think about it. There's a reason that chick flicks are so heart-wrenching for all of us, for all of us. And think about it. Uh, Things start out good, Uh, and then something awful happens, and then most of the film uh, is just looking about how everything is awful, and nothing's going to help, and it's all building towards this really intense moment, and then sometimes the movie ends with it still being sad, uh, which is what makes, according to my definition, a terrible movie. Uh, But much of the time, uh, there's this sort of miraculous, incredible turning of the plot, and they live happily ever after. You see, I believe there's a reason that this kind of plot, this uh, setting, conflict, Uh, building up to a climax and resolution. There's a reason this kind of story tugs at our heart so powerfully. Uh, I believe it's because our hearts were created for this kind of story. See, when mankind fell into sin, God could have ended things. He could have wiped the slate clean. He could have ended the movie after the second scene, but he didn't. The Old Testament walks through biography after biography, chronicle after chronicle, telling the story of God's incredible patience with his people. And the cool thing about Malachi uh, is that it's the last book of the Old Testament. These are are God's last words to Israel, to his people, before the climax of the story, before the arrival of Jesus Christ, their savior, uh, the one who would turn the story around, who would lead them into the promised land where their broken relationship with God would be fully restored. If you're familiar with the book of Malachi, uh, you'll know that Israel at the time it was written had gotten distracted from this story. Uh, And because of that, they were experiencing mission drift. So God sent Malachi to remind them of this grand story, to remind them of their global purpose. And at Sojourn, um, as we continue to transition from church plant to established church, we too need to hear from Malachi. The temptation is to settle in, uh, to get comfortable, uh, to get used to how things are going, and to lose sight of this grand story. So as God called his people back to the story then, uh, let's let him call us back today, and I really do believe um, that we need to hear these words. I pray that God will reveal himself uh, as we lean in together. So with that, let's jump in. Read with me. Uh, we're in Malachi chapter 4, and we'll read verses 1 through 3. It says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. I'll stop there. There's three main things to notice here in verses 1 through 3. First, God, God calls his people to look to the future. Then he tells them what that day is going to look like. And as he does that, um, he's going to reveal something of his purposes. So to start with, we do. Uh, we, we see, as we see a shift here in Malachi from diagnosing the present state of things, which he did up until this point, towards looking to the future. He says, behold, the day is coming. And in particular, uh, he points the people towards hope. This is the first time in Malachi that we see uh, hope referred to. And we see that in how God describes this coming day of the Lord. Let's unpack this a bit. Here in verse 1, we see that it will burn like an oven, that evildoers will be set ablaze and will be stubble. And then verse 1 ends with, neither root nor branch will remain. Now, when there's a forest fire, uh, you, might be, you might be familiar with this. When, when, when there's a forest fire, the trees burn down, but usually the roots that are underground are left. They're protected by the ground. Uh, And if you've seen pictures of a place after a forest fire, you'll notice that there's branches that somehow fell just at the right time, landed just in the right place, that they didn't get consumed as well. But verse verse 1 here makes it clear that on this day, even the roots and the branches will be destroyed. This is a short proverb uh, meant to express utter destruction, that no one will escape, neither root nor branch will remain. As one theologian put it, To the ungodly, it will be like a furnace where the fire burns most fiercely and which scorches and consumes everything which comes near to it. So we're told that this coming day of the Lord will be a day of judgment and destruction in verse 1. But then in verse 2, we're told that it will be a day also of healing and joy. Look at verse 2, which says this. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, I want to pause here to make an important clarification. Uh, We believe that God created us, and because God created us and we are not God, we believe that the only way that we can know about God and about God's story is if he reveals that to us we believe that the Bible tells the story of God progressively building upon his revelation to his people and so as Christians in the year 2015 uh, much of our understanding of the story of the Bible comes in large part uh, from what God revealed to us in uh, through Christ in the New Testament because of this it's good right and I think incredibly important to look back at the Old Testament and and notice really with with amazement, all the ways that it points to Christ. Uh, This is what Jesus himself did. It's what the apostles did. Uh, And I have to think uh, that this passage, this passage that talks about a son of righteousness rising with healing in its wings, this had to have been uh, one of the apostles' favorite passages to preach Christ from. But listen, I say all that, I make that clarification in order to say this, uh, that I think that seeing Jesus in this text is both correct and important. Uh, What I'm not talking about is looking at the word son, changing the U to O and turning it into the son of righteousness as an obvious reference to Jesus, the son of God. That's not what I'm talking about. Here's what I am talking about. The majority of commentators throughout the history of the church agree that Malachi doesn't just refer here to some abstract righteousness that will shine on the day of the Lord, but instead refers to a very personal Christ whose righteousness will shine on his people. I mean, in the New Testament, uh, Jesus is referred to as the light of the world, with the image of light following him throughout his life. Uh, and we're also told that in Christ we become the righteousness of God. So when we read that the sun of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, we get to think about we get to think about how salvation comes to the one who fears God through the beams of the light of Christ shining fully upon them. We get this image of the sun rising in the spring and how all nature rejoices in its light and warmth. When the sun, you, you might have seen this, when the sun rises on the horizon, um, it's like these beams of sun shoot out on both sides. Uh, Malachi compares that to the wings of a bird. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. What a picture. And we continue reading. Uh, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. See the joy. Uh, The one, uh, the joy of the one on whom this sun of righteousness will shine is compared in a really simple way uh, to that of a calf who's let loose from the stall, who's let loose from a cage. Um, I was going to put up a video of a calf calf jumping out of a stall, uh, but I, you know, I didn't want to limit our imaginations. Um, It really is going to be a beautiful and incredible day. So, what have we seen? We've seen God call his people to look forward to the day that is coming, and then he describes that day. And as he does that, we, we get a window into his ultimate purpose for creation. His ultimate purpose is to restore all things, to bring peace on earth once again, and in order to do that, all that is wicked, all that is bad, all that is broken, is broken—excuse will be purged from the earth. And I think this brings us to a crucial question brings us to a crucial question. Uh, This idea of judgment, uh, this idea of the day of the Lord uh, is a huge stumbling block for people. Um, It was for me. It says this, "How, how could you possibly worship a God who would do this to people? Yeah, that's what this means. This means that there are people who will be destroyed. This isn't talking about evil trees and bad plants that need to be burned away. This is talking about people. Listen, those who are arrogant, those who think they have it figured out and don't need God, those who continue in their rebellion against God, those who are evildoers, these people will experience the wrath of God as he brings judgment upon them. And this is hard. There are many people who say, yeah, I, you know, I, get, I get what you're talking about. I'm, I'm okay with a loving Jesus, but if you're talking about a God who will bring wrath and destruction on people, then I want no part of it. I have friends who are members of Sojourn who struggle with this. You see, in order to be able to worship a God who would do this, I think the real question we come to ask is this, what, why is the day of the Lord a good thing? And let me try to, you know, I'm not going to be able to, to fully answer that question, but let me try to show us why uh, Why I really think that this day of judgment, a day that looks like this, is what we, deep down, each of us really yearns for. Because we all yearn for justice. Let me show you may have heard uh, what happened in France uh, a week and a half ago. Um, a couple of different groups of terrorists uh, uh, in a coordinated attack uh, gathered in uh, public spaces in Paris uh, and in Saint-Denis, one of the suburbs uh, of Paris in France. Uh, and then in a coordinated attack, they, uh, some of them were suicide bombers, some of them were shooters. They just opened fire uh, on random people. Uh, indiscriminate killing. Uh, indiscriminate horrific ending of human life uh, by suicide killers that's awful i could i could tell you the the true story of of the man who spent his entire adult life 30 years uh, of his career was was dedicated to stealing money from people to embezzling funds he was he was a part he was over this ponzi scheme he stole millions of dollars from 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 older people who were putting money into their retirement account he stole all of their retirement and then right when the feds were about to catch up with him he committed suicide because he didn't want to face justice or I could tell you I could tell you the true story of a woman who for 15 years kidnapped children and kept them in sex slavery and then when they finally brought her to court her case was dismissed because when the prosecutors were collecting uh, when the prosecutors were collecting evidence they violated her rights she didn't get a jail sentence. She didn't get anything. They even paid her court fees. Our hearts break for these stories. We're, we're forced to suppress anger at these stories and because we all seek for justice. And for some reason, even, we know that even if someone gets the death penalty, even if we catch those last two terrorists, I mean, what are we going to do? We know, deep down, we know that we, we can't bring about real justice. And these stories keep happening. Evil remains all around us. We all seek for justice. And as we read in Malachi, God is telling them, the reason why this day of the Lord is a good thing is that this day of the Lord is when God will bring about justice. And more than that, he will bring about healing and there will be full, unbounded joy once again. There's coming a day when his glory will cover the earth, when all evil and brokenness will be done away with. That is ultimately God's purpose. But well, here's the thing. Let's read on. God has said to look to the future uh, and and listen to what the coming day is going to look like. Look at what I purpose to do for you. And then in verse 4, God essentially says, here's what you should do while you wait. Read with me in verse 4. It says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. There's a rich truth beneath this statement. You see, it's a call for them to remember the law, and in that, as they remember what God has required of them, they will uh, will remember that that this law is rooted in all that he has done for them, and it is this remembrance that will inform the way that they live their lives. Brandon has spent uh, a lot of time over these past few weeks explaining this, that all we do in our lives is meant to flow uh, out of what we remember. The loud and clear call that Malachi is making throughout this book is based on that fact. Uh, the people had drifted. They were in a period of mission drift. And God says to his people in Malachi, listen, you want to avoid mission drift? Remember. Remember my love for you. Remember what I've done for you. Remember the story that I'm telling through you. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules, uh, and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Remember. Here's the thing though. History tells us that that didn't happen. Uh, God God used Malachi to rebuke his people. He told the people to remember the law of my servant Moses. Uh, And then uh, we know that while there may have been a, a, a brief period of invigoration in trying to follow the law, ultimately they failed. Because the problem was this, they didn't want to do things God's way. They couldn't fix what was truly wrong because what was truly wrong wasn't what they were or weren't doing. It was that in their hearts, they wanted to do things their way. They were still living out the rebellion against God that started with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And, I mean, you would have thought that this is all they needed, right? God just told them about this great and awesome day of the Lord that is coming when the arrogant and evildoers will be destroyed and the righteous will be healed and preserved in joy for all eternity and then essentially says, okay, which one do you want? Do you want to do whatever you want and go to hell? Or do you want to follow my law and go to heaven? <laughs> you've, probably heard a, you've probably heard something like that before. But it's ultimately flawed because the law is powerless to change hearts. No matter how scary one option is or how beautiful another is, our desires can't be changed from the outside in. The Bible itself explains that God gave the law as a good and wonderful gift to his people, but that it's powerless to change their hearts. We know this to be true from experience. I mean, think about it. Living a life of ritual won't change your heart, even though sometimes we really think it will. But it won't. We've tried enough New Year's resolutions, diets, routines of waking up early, Bible reading plans. We've tried enough of these things to know that trying to change our internal desires with our external actions doesn't work. And we've known this for a long time. There's another story from ancient Greece about a legendary sea captain named Odysseus and his experience with the land of Sirens. Let me read this story for us. Odysseus, the great captain of the seas in ancient Greece, knew that the island of Sirens was an island to be avoided. The beautiful, half-naked, woman-like creatures who inhabited the island would sing their beautiful songs to entice sailors to enter their port. The sirens would then attack the sailors, maiming and killing them before consuming the bodies. To avoid this sensuous but deadly island, Odysseus ordered his men to bind them with ropes, to put wax in their own ears, and then ordered the sailors to tighten the ropes when they saw their captain fighting against them. As Odysseus and his men sailed by the island of sirens, Odysseus heard this beautiful music and wanted with all of his might to swim to the sirens. He fought against the ropes. The sailors, with wax in their ears, tightened the ropes. Odysseus fought harder. He would later say, I became desperate to plunge into the sea. The sailors used the ropes to restrain Odysseus, and the ship eventually sailed by the island of Sirens, avoiding certain destruction and death of Odysseus and his men. But Odysseus was scarred for life. The ropes couldn't change his desires. They only prevented him from obtaining them. The legacy of Odysseus fighting against the restraints could be seen in the physical scars that he bore. You see, the ropes kept him back. Uh, The ropes did keep him back, but they were powerless to change the fact that he really wanted to go. In the same way, the law is powerless to change hearts. It can be an effective guardian, but if it's all there is then all that's left will be scars and pain. For Malachi's original hearers, uh, the law didn't fix the problem. It only for, it only served to further reveal their real problem, which is the rebellious human heart passed down from generation to generation that has been their reality ever since the Garden of Eden. God doesn't leave them there, though. Let's read on, and, and here's where things really start to build. Let's read verses 5 and 6. It says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. These are the last words in the Old Testament. The last word of the Old Testament is the word destruction. And let's look at what happens. Verse 5, God says he will send Elijah before this great and awesome day of the Lord comes. I'm going to make another important clarification, uh, but much more brief this time. Uh, we now know that this prophecy of Elijah is fulfilled in John the Baptist, uh, who would be the one to come and prepare the way for Jesus. We know this from many places in the New Testament. Uh, let me pick two. First, uh, before John the Baptist was born, you might remember the story from Luke chapter one. Here's, here's what uh, John the Baptist, or excuse me, here's what the angel Gabriel says to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, before his son is born in Luke 1, verses 16 and 17. It says this, And your son, Zechariah, Gabriel says this, And your son, Zechariah, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So God says to Zechariah, this prophecy in Malachi about God sending Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and vice versa, this prophecy is about your son. Second place in the New Testament, Jesus himself makes it clear that John the Baptist was the prophesied Elijah from Malachi 4. Referring to John the Baptist in Matthew 11, uh, Jesus says this. He says, if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. And in Matthew 17, Jesus' disciples come up to him and ask, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus essentially says, because that's true. Uh, And then he tells them, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist so the angel tells Zechariah that his son would be the one who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah and Jesus himself identifies John the Baptist as the Elijah who is to come so when we go back to Malachi 4 we know that this is a prophecy foreshadowing John the Baptist God sent John the Baptist in the spirit and power of Elijah the prophet to prepare the way for Jesus. And what is God doing? You see, the day of both wrath and healing is coming. And because the law couldn't change the hearts, the wicked hearts of men, we know that the law was never God's final plan for his people, it couldn't have been. There is no way that under the law, the hearts of fathers could be turned to their children and the hearts of children could be turned towards their fathers. This turning of hearts wasn't something that the law could do. But as we keep reading, we see that this prophecy was fulfilled completely. Verse 5 says that Elijah will come. And then we read this in verse 6. And he, talking about the coming Elijah, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So in other words, my messenger will turn their hearts. And if not, I will come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Well, Let's, let's think about this. Did God's, word, did God's people heed the words of John the Baptist? No. Were hearts changed by the words of John the Baptist? Ultimately, no. I mean, when John the Baptist came, people came to listen and people were even baptized. But did the Jews receive Jesus as their Messiah, which was the central thing that John the Baptist was talking about? No. They rejected him and then murdered him on the cross. God's plan was at work, though, you see, because he knew it was going to happen. Because of the wickedness of the hearts of these men uh, and their ability to change, nothing was going to happen to prevent this land, this promised land, from being struck with a decree of utter destruction. So what does God do? You see, all along, God had promised his people that he was preparing for them this promised land. And on the cross, God revealed that Jesus Christ was this promised land that God had been preparing for them all along. And he was struck with a decree of utter destruction. There's no more destruction than in Jesus' words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God poured out the wrath that was due for his people completely on his son. All that God had done up to this point, throughout the Old Testament, giving the people the law, telling, uh, giving the people directions uh, on how to sacrifice animals to atone for their sins, giving the people prophets to call them back to themself, to himself, giving them promise after promise that he would make things right, that he would give them this promised land. He did all of this simply to point to Christ. Jesus was the ultimate and last sacrifice whose blood poured out, not only paid for the sins of his people, but cleansed them, purified them so that God himself and all of his holiness could enter into them with his Holy Spirit and truly change their hearts. So in a sense, this day of the Lord that we just talked about has already come. See, this promised Elijah, John the Baptist, came and prepared the way for Jesus. And then on the day that Christ took the cross was the fulfillment of the last words of the Old Testament that God would strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. <clears throat> Excuse me. Justice has been wrought out of the greatest injustice in the history of the world the crucifixion of Christ on the cross. But we're still waiting for something. We are, in a sense, uh, living in between. This promised day of the Lord has come with Christ, and yet it is also to come also with Christ. And this is the tension that we live in. Uh, And we read about this throughout the New Testament, that we're living in the fullness of life with God in Christ, but we're also waiting for his return when all that is evil and broken will be done away with. You might have heard uh, someone refer to Christians as living in this already but not yet tension. Well, that's what this is what that refers to. Uh, Christ has already come and He has yet to come again. Malachi 4 is a prophecy with the rich two-part fulfillment and I know this might sound confusing uh, but but listen this is probably my favorite part of the story this is why Christianity didn't just stay in the Middle East in Israel with the Jews this is why we have a church here in Houston right now why there's churches all over the world you see when Christ came as the promised Messiah to bring his people back into right relationship with God the Father if that day on the cross had been just for Israel then the rest of the world would have fallen under the wrath of God and let me tell you that would have been hard to stomach but that wasn't God's plan. When Christ completed his work on the cross, then rose to life in the resurrection right before he ascended into heaven, do you remember what he said? He said, go. He said, you know, you see, Christ didn't come, he didn't come just for the sins of the Jews. Christ came for the sins of the whole world. God, in his incredible patience with humanity said go to all the world listen go God is not done with all these other nations yet God has always desired to have a people for himself and that people is made up of people from every tribe and tongue from every nation of the world so go preach this good news victory has been won eternity has been secured in and through Christ go now and be heralds of that final day when God's glory will cover the earth it will be a fearful day for the enemies of God, yes. But God has made a way through this judgment, through the fire that will leave neither root nor branch. And that way is in Christ. Believe in Christ. We sing this song, Rock of Ages. And the first line is, is this. It says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. You see, there's this wrath of God coming and Christ became a rock in whose cleft we can hide so that that as the flood of God's wrath pours over us, it doesn't touch us. And then after this is done, he will release us and we we will leap forth like calves leaping from a stall, jumping for joy. Sojourn, this is why we're here. This is the story that God invites us into life is beautiful there is this tension that we know that something isn't all the way right yet yes there is this yearning for justice and for things to be fixed but the greatest work has been completed christ's work on the cross is finished so life today is beautiful because we get to live in the light of the day that is to come god invites us to live distinct beautiful lives characterized by a beautiful fear of God that causes us to give thanks for Christ. This is what we were made for. This is why we do what we do. I mean, here here at Sojourn, all that we do is meant to be part of that story. Our mission statement is simple. It says that we are joining the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption. Everything we do, we do to spread the word of the glory of Christ across the earth. And as we do that, we do that to join in with the Father, Son, and Spirit in this historic work of redemption, this work that he started way back then, and he's, going to con- he's continuing today, and he will continue until that final day when Christ returns to bring justice to the world. So everything we do, we, we, we say this, we say that we make disciples, multiply parishes, and plant churches. And as we do that, we do that to join in with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, we do that to prepare one another for life in the new heavens and the new earth. See, this beautiful life that we get that we get to live is only truly beautiful when we do it together. And as we practice living out tomorrow today, we do so in front of a watching world. So we we make disciples, we 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 share the gospel, preach the gospel to one another, we multiply parishes to scatter around in neighborhoods, we plant churches to scatter to new new neighborhoods uh in the city of Houston. And all of this that we do uh that transforms the most mundane uh things that we do the most extraordinary things that we do transforms all of it into the most meaningful thing that we could possibly do but i have to say this listen the reason we've waited until week four in this series uh, to even talk about those three simple things making disciples multiplying parishes and planting churches and i didn't even really explain them that much you see the reason uh... we, we, we waited until this the reason i haven't gone in depth is because listen the biggest danger that leads towards mission drift is not the mission itself what Malachi would say to us is that we could could execute our philosophy of ministry with excellence and still have mission drift because the biggest danger that leads towards mission drift isn't the mission itself. The biggest danger that leads towards mission drift is the human heart, the tendency to get distracted from this grand story, this beautiful story, this tendency to forget. And see, Malachi calls his hearers to remember, and that's his call to us. Listen, remember this global, cosmic, beautiful story that God is giving us a glimpse into. Going back to Greek mythology one last time as I close. Jason was another captain who sailed the Aegean Sea. He and his men, the Argonauts, had also heard that the island of the Sirens was beautiful but deadly. Unlike Odysseus, Jason didn't sail by the island bound by ropes and with wax in his men's ears. Jason asked Orpheus, the greatest musician in all the world, to sail with him and his men. When they came near the island of the Sirens, Orpheus began playing his music. Jason and his men were so captivated by what they heard from Orpheus that when the Sirens began singing their songs, they sailed right on by because their hearts were captured by more beautiful music. See, this is what the message of God's grace in Jesus Christ does for us. It's a sweeter song Listen, many, many who call themselves Christians often seem more concerned with tightening the ropes than creating beautiful music, and that's where mission drift happens. So, June, let's, let's not be that kind of people. Let's, let's remember that the work is finished, that because of that, we have nothing to fear, nothing left to earn. We are free to live each and every aspect of our lives with a truly global purpose. Let's remember Jesus, brothers and sisters, and create beautiful music together that both we and the world desperately need to hear. Amen.